it is bad out there. You have to equip people to be able to deal with that and talk about that. That's regardless of having a mental illness because you have folks who have mental illness, but what about general mental health struggles? Welcome back everyone to the Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization Show, the home of Googleization Nation, where we talk with HR and business thought leaders about the crazy shift going on all around us and explore the disruptive convergence of technology, business, and people. Here are your hosts, Ira Wolf and Jason Cochran. Well, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Geek Skeezers and Googleization, winner of the Most Forward Thinking Impact Award from People Forward Network. I'm Ira Wolf, and thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. And I'm Jason Cochran. If you think this is just another podcast, think again. We are the voice of the most important, crucial conversations that are confronting business leaders and people today. Our goal with the show is to bring you ways to reimagine tomorrow and explore the impact and convergence of business, technology, and people. This episode of Geek Skeezers and Googleization is sponsored by our partner, Y Institute, your personal and professional GPS for a meaningful life and purpose-filled career. You'll hear more about the Y Institute and their Y operating system a little later in the show. Before we get started, just a few reminders. Uh, we are SHRM certified, so if you're interested in earning uh, credits for listening to any of our episodes, anywhere between a half a credit to a full credit, you can go to our website, geeksgeezersandgoogleization.com or geeksgeezersgoogleization.com, uh, either one. You can click on podcasts and there is a short form you need to fill out, answer a few questions to, to prove that you listen to the show, and then we will send you an activity code. So you can easily do that by going to geeksgeezersgoogleization.com. While you're there, if you're not a member of googleizationnation.com, uh, please do so. You'll get updates about last week's show, upcoming shows, and today's show, and you definitely don't want to miss that. And if you're listening on a podcast, please rate and review our the episode and or the show. Uh, every little bit helps, and we're looking to spread our message. For many of our listeners, and especially you, Jason, you know that one of my abilities is connecting dots, often seeing patterns that other people don't see right away. Or maybe some people might color, call it coloring outside the lines. So I'm not sure which one it is, but I digress a bit because two of our guests, uh, both New York Times bestselling authors and experts in the future of aging, Stephen Kotler and Chip Conley, talked about this and they called it wisdom, that connecting of the dots as, uh, that comes with age and experience. Well, hopefully our conversation today will help others become not just smarter, but wiser. So this morning on the way to, to a meeting, a pretty early meeting, I was listening to a podcast about the future of death. Now that seems like a pretty maybe boring or morbid topic, but it was fascinating and I highly recommend it. It's a part of a new series on Audible from South by Southwest or SXSW uh, called Futurology. And one of the questions they asked us to explore was how our relationship with death changed over the last century, and especially uh, with technology. It got me thinking, because this is the question they asked, how is technology changing that relationship, our, our personal relationship with death? And it got me thinking about today, because we're gonna be talking about getting workplace mental health right. 
with Melissa Doman is how is our relationship with mental health changing? So I'm really stoked to talk to Melissa today. Uh, she's an organizational, organizational psychologist. That's easy for me to say. And her visiting the show couldn't come at a better time because, because not because my brain synapses as I was driving today were just firing about how do we reframe this whole conversation about mental health. Uh, and that follows on the heels of a conversation I had yesterday. Uh, because I had the good fortune to meet with a team of warehouse supervisors. These are up and coming leaders in, a, in an organization that is a family owned business that is just growing leaps and bounds. And they each took a leadership assessment. And really, it, it was it was an opportunity to just meet them and review the assessment and help them on their guide. But what I learned from them was priceless. Uh, my colleague and I who were there got to hear some really personal stories, including one manager that shared how stressed out he was, how burned out he was as recently as 18 to 24 months ago. And these were her, his words, I can't seem to turn it off. And we used to call that good work ethic. Companies rewarded us for workaholism, uh, for being on all the time, for coming in late, staying late, being on call, and especially over the last few years of, of always being connected. We, we seem to treat workaholism and mental health uh, much different than some of these other things. So that that may be beyond, just want you to think about that. But, in, but it put in line what another manager told me was that I was so committed and worried about my job, everything that I had to do with my job, that my wife told me she was thinking of leaving me because my mind always seemed to be somewhere else. So that got me thinking about something else. Uh, we talked about, COVID, we all experienced COVID, the pandemic, how contagious it was in the workplace. So we, we isolated people, we quarantined, we went home. But mental health seems to be an epidemic or a pandemic, and it's pretty contagious because when one person is stressed or burned out or is experiencing uh, or has a mental illness uh, or is not mentally healthy. Uh, they got a lot of things on their mind, whether it's as, I say this lightly, simple as stress or to the extent of burnout. We don't recognize that and we think that's a weakness. And um, I, I can't help but think that we've got to reprioritize how we approach mental health in the age of such rapid change or as our listeners have grown to know it, Googleization. That's right. And I hear those stories and it's clear Ira, there's no future work if we don't get workplace mental health right, which is what we're going to talk with Melissa about today. And that's not up for debate anymore. Uh, in fact, the World Health Organization lists the following conditions as risks to your mental health at work. Listen to this list real quick. Underuse of skills or being underskilled for work. Excessive workloads or work pace, understaffing. Long, unsocial or inflexible hours. Lack of control over job design or workload an organizational culture that enables negative behaviors, limited support from colleagues or authoritarian supervision, violence, harassment, or bullying, discrimination, exclusion, an unclear job role, under or over promotion, job insecurity, inadequate pay or poor investment in career development, and conflicting homework demands. Whew. I mean, that list might as well be the priority list that we have for every CEO and HR leader who owns talent strategy right now. And the good news is with this list, we have a measure of control over many of them. 
And the even better news is that we've got an expert, Melissa Doman, organizational psychologist with us today. And she literally wrote the book on how to do mental health support at work really well. The name of the book is, Yes, You Can Talk About Mental Health at Work. Here's why and how to do it really well. And you've probably heard of some of the companies that she's worked with on these things regarding mental health at work. Names like Google, Dow Jones, Microsoft, Salesforce, Siemens, Estee Lauder, and Janssen, just to name a few. And you've probably also seen her content as a subject matter expert in uh, publications such as Vogue, BBC, CNBC, Inc. Magazine. And she's also one of LinkedIn's 2022 top 10 voices on mental health. She's got one core goal, and that is to equip companies, individuals, and leaders to have constructive conversations about mental health, team dynamics, and communication in the workplace. Well, that certainly fits in with how to create, uh, with our whys, Jason, to, to create a better way to challenge the status quo. But before we bring on Melissa, it's time for our perfect labor storm segment. This is where on each episode, we focus on a disruptive, surprising, or worrisome trend that we believe you should know about. Here is our perfect labor storm, and no surprise, we're gonna be talking a little bit about mental health. So according to the World Health Association, or organization, sorry, around 84%, more than eight out of 10 American workers experienced at least one mental health challenge over the past year. Um, this included stress and burnout to depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, PTSD. Uh, that's how we got started, Jason. I met you when we had a conversation two years ago. That's Sounds right. crazy. Two years ago, almost actually three years three. ago. Yeah. Almost three years ago about how the pandemic was going to create some episodes of PTSD. So here we are. Uh, according to the Workplace Mental Health Institute, 82%. Again, eight out of ten workers were diagnosed with a mental health illness, and they do, and but they don't tell their workplace managers about it. Why? Because they're afraid of the negative negative impact on their career. It still has a stigma, being embarrassed or losing their job. And finally, according to Gallup, nearly one in five workers rate their mental health as fair or poor. It's twenty percent of the workforce uh, is is troubled uh, and recognizing that they got mental health problems. Uh, four out of 10 U.S. workers report their, report their job having a negative impact on their mental health, which leads to burnout. And 57% are unable to confirm, say that again, 57% are unable to confirm the existence of easily accessible mental health support services in their workplace, even when employers are trying to do it right. But the employees don't know it exists. Yep. And so to help us unpack all of this, we've got Melissa Dome. And, and so let's give a, a warm Googleization Nation welcome to Melissa Dome as we prepare to unpack all this. <laughs> I've never had a live studio audience clapping before. Oh my Does it make you feel like, did you ever watch TGIF back in the day? Um, yes. You always had that the background. That's what it makes you feel like, right? We're back on a TGIF episode here. It actually almost kind of felt like I was coming onto the show Full House, the original, not the remake, where there was like the studio like clapping and I was like, oh, um, Danny Tanner, 
<laughs> right. Yeah. Speaking of speaking of what we were talking about earlier, you know, in terms of what I was talking about, death, what you do with social media accounts. Um, I remember there was a big thing whenever, unfortunately, Danny passed away with that. But Melissa, yeah. we, we obviously don't want to dig into that topic today. We want to dig oh, God, into that's a whole episode. In itself. That's a whole other episode <laughs> that we'll have to talk about another time. That's fascinating. Sure. But but today, as we get ready to talk about how to do uh, mental health and the workplace right. Let's get to know you a little bit better to start off sure. here. You are an organizational psychologist. Yeah. There's probably a lot of people wondering, I hear this term organizational psychologists, yeah. who are they and what do they do? So tell us a little bit about your background and how you got passionate about this. Happy to explain. So I am a, a former clinician myself. And the main reason that I transitioned into organizational psychology, or maybe a, you know, a more accessible term would be workplace psychology, is because every single one of my clients who came in to see me, none of them talked about what was going on with them at work. None of them. And a lot of them also felt that they were being, and I don't use this word lightly, tortured in, in the workplace in ways that they just didn't feel comfortable to try to address. And I thought, let me try and make an impact at the source because I'm, I'm treating these patients, you know, one at a time or small group at a time, but I feel like I'm doing it in a broken system and a broken narrative. And I feel like I'm spinning my wheels. And so I transitioned into very traditional org psych. So, you know, director of uh, culture and employee development, people and leadership development, very out of the box org psych stuff. So what I mean by that is focusing on the psychology of team dynamics and communication and trying to improve those processes for people within organizations so they can feel psychologically safe with each other, so they can do their work and have a sense of purpose, so they can achieve the mission that they're all there to achieve. And uh, I tend to look at the workplace as just um, an adult playground. We all just have different toys and we're a little bit older. And uh, I got to tell you, as someone who worked for very, very toxic workplaces in uh, my younger days, and uh, having seen on the other side of that, being a clinician who is treating people, I basically said to myself, well, someone's got to do something about this. It might as well be me. So I transitioned into, and I still do that work, by the way. I love working with businesses around emotional intelligence, constructive conflict, intentional communication. I geek out on that stuff. I love that stuff. But what really just burned my butt is that as I was doing that work, when I tried to do some you know, sessions on stress in the workplace, whatever it was, if I try to use the term mental health, the, the, <laughs> the people in the businesses around me <laughs> We don't, we don't use that term in the workplace. And I was like, but why? It's just describing the health state of an organ. I don't understand the big deal, which then drove me to subspecialize in mental health at work because I was so tired of people treating that term like it was the boogeyman. And so I have kind of those two tracks of work I do is, is specifically around mental health at work, but also I still love working on emotional intelligence and those other pieces because they do ultimately touch each other during our work day. Perfect. And you touched on one of the topics we want to talk about today, which is, you know, we had some data suggesting, you know, still more than eight out of 10 employees don't feel comfortable talking about mental health at work. Yeah. Um, and so can you explain to us a little bit of why is that still the case? Are we making any progress? What are the things you're seeing that are maybe you're getting better with that or what do we need to do to, to improve it? 
So there's a lot of questions there. You might have to remind me all the ones that you asked. Yeah, but sorry. So no, you're fine. So you know the the highlight here is yes, we're making progress. Definitely making progress. You know, even when I was in the world of work in the the early aughts and in, in the corporate world, I wouldn't talk about my mental health to my manager. That was like a death wish if you tried to do that. So I'm I'm talking about things that I even experienced as as someone in the workplace. And so we are making progress. And what I would say is that there is tons of progress around accurate education of what we're actually talking about, as opposed to you know what people think we're talking about. There's a lot of progress on the intersections between diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging and mental health. So what I mean by that is looking at cultural, gender, familial, other influences that affect our perceptions, our biases, our opinions, our rules around talking about this topic. So lots and lots and lots of education is, is there. We're also having a lot of progress around saying it's important to talk about in the workplace. And there's also a lot of progress in terms of access to resources. Where I think we are still lacking, which is something that I've really dedicated a lot in my work and also in the book, is, well, we can say this is important until we're blue in the face. We can talk about the concept until we're blue in the face. But if we're not equipping people with the skills on both sides, by the way, not just the supporter, but people who are sharing, what are people going to do with what they've learned? You have to give them a way to action that education in a realistic way in the world in which it currently exists not one with puppies and rainbows and ice cream, although that sounds amazing and I would love to live in that place. But I think that's where we're really lacking is there's a lot of, um, I would call it performative mental health at work efforts going on in, in some places or a, um, I might be saying this word incorrectly, uh, commoditization, did I say that right? Uh, commoditization of the topic where it looks good to talk about it or it looks good that you are, you know, checking it off this box, as opposed to really practicing it as a workplace value and teaching people how and why to have these conversations in a constructive and realistic fashion. So it's uh, unfortunately, with anything new and shiny, even though the concept is not new, but talking about it at work is new, you have a lot of bandwagoners who are trying to jump on that bandwagon for maybe not the most helpful reasons. And so I think another place we're lacking is quality control. And uh, I am but one woman. <laughs> so I try to do what I can with the clients that I have and also through the book, but it's, uh, it's a bit wild west out there in terms of this topic. And I think that it's gonna take years to get some more kind of realistic structure, expectations, around this topic because we're still very early days within the first five years of, of this effort. And um, there's a lot more to go. Well, and I love that you focus in your book, Melissa, on making it a point of we don't need to always connect mental health and workplace to profits, to productivity, to no. employee engagement. Like it really is its own thing that you need to do it for the right reasons for your people. And so, you know, with that in mind, can you share some of the, the, the recipe pieces, the tips yeah. and tricks of yeah. how, how you might get leadership to think that way? Because I'm sure we have a lot of HR leaders right now that oh, are yeah. like, 
I think that way, but how do I get the other executives on my team to not be thinking about, okay, we're going to do this so that it improves our business numbers? So I'm going to say something that might surprise you. Now, let's keep in mind that there have been many cases made about why we need to talk about this. There's been the data case, the return on investment case, the bleeding heart human case, the bring your whole self to work case. All of those things aren't wrong. They're just not enough to move the needle because each person who's a a power that be within their organization has their own motivation or reasoning as to why they want to bring up this topic. And a very important example of that, by the way, is I was talking to uh, a, a very senior, senior, senior person in a um, financial business. And I was talking about bringing up this topic, you know, as part of core professional development, blah, blah, blah. And he had said to me, oh, well, you know, I, I'm assuming the goal is to get the number of mental health claims to go down. <laughs> I said, no, it's the other way around. You want the claims to go up so people are actually using the resources that you're paying for And if they're using the resources that you're paying for and actually getting help and assistance, then the odds of them feeling better at work, producing better at work are more likely. Now, you'll notice the language I use because we cannot guarantee anything in life except for death and taxes, and lots of people don't pay taxes. So (laughs) what I tend to, you know, I'm not wrong. (laughs) So the thing with that topic is, you know, we've made all those cases. And there are still people who are like, "Mm, I'm not convinced. And so the approach I tend to take is, well, all those things are true, but are you observing the dumpster fire that is our planet and it's continuing to be that way? Don't you want to give people the skills to be able to cope with that, to be able to talk with each other about that, to feel that they can talk about that in your business so they don't vote with their feet and go work for somewhere that will? It's your choice. The world is continuing. I know every generation says this, but I don't know if you saw that post from the like um, atomic clock thing that we're like the closest to midnight that we've ever been. Did you see that in the last 24 hours? Not the best news, just the the collection of factors that are happening in the world. And a lot of the uh, scientists who are responsible for managing that atomic clock are like, I don't know, it's not looking great. So that's the approach I tend to take is based on the realistic context in which we all currently exist. It is bad out there. You have to equip people to be able to deal with that and talk about that. That's regardless of having a mental illness because you have folks who have mental illness, but what about general mental health struggles? It doesn't have to always be clinical because if you think about the feeling wheel from Dr. Gloria Wilcox, there are dozens of emotions that we're pre-programmed with out of the box to help us respond to stimuli people in our environment. Well, why can't we have the skill set to be able to talk about and respond what's coming at us for being alive, or as I call it, the cost of doing business. (laughs) And that's the approach I tend to take is very realistic because all the other cases before kind of helped, but didn't get it across. So I tend to use logical, observable facts that people can't argue with and that seems to, to hit the mark. And I mentioned this earlier, and this just hit me in that listening to the podcast this morning, is that stress, I, I never considered this, stress is a contagion. 
in the workplace. So imagine, you know, we go back to the to COVID, and I know this could be controversial. This isn't political, I but mean. imagine they said, "Listen, if you test positive, you have symptoms. You can come to work. Just don't tell anybody. Don't wear a mask. Don't treat yourself. Just come to work, and you know, we'll, we'll just ignore it, and hopefully, it doesn't spread." The fact is, we treat mental health that way or mental illness that way. We treat stress that way. We trust burnout that way, that people come to work stressed out. It's the dumpster fire. They have things going on at work with their bosses, toxic culture, personal things, whole lit litany of paying their bills. Uh, and yet we say, don't bring that to the workplace. And yet for every person who's stressed, it stresses everyone around them. When somebody's stressed out, either I don't, you know, I'm going to tiptoe around them, I'm not going to do the work, it brings productivity down, um, the worst, it, you know, it, it just seems to spiral out of control. I mean, am I wrong? Or is, is that a different way, maybe I, that we can tell the story? I would look at it a little, just like very slightly differently. That's why you're here. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I know this is not at all what you were implying, but for the sake of clarity, mental illness is not contagious. <laughs> um, it's basically, you know, when people have a mental health condition, it develops for a whole host of reasons, genetics, uh, you know, trauma throughout childhood or traumatic experiences when you are an adult, um, you know, attachment problems. There are lots of reasons that people develop a mental illness, none of which are con conscious choice. People don't choose to have a mental illness. They choose how to manage it, provided they have access to resources and can actually afford to use them. Lots of marginalized communities, unfortunately, don't have access to that help, which is really terrible and something that I know the U.S. Surgeon General is trying to work on. So, however, when it comes to stress and the behavior that results from that, people deal with stress in many different ways. There are lots of folks who go inward and they're kind of like a duck swimming on a pond. They look calm on top, but they are freaking out beneath. You would never know. There's some people, they hide it really well. There's other people who leave a big fat stress footprint on other people that when it's coming up for them, they automatically put it towards other people because it needs somewhere to go. And some of them do so a bit recklessly and aren't as good at, at managing that stress. So I think that it actually goes back a lot to emotional intelligence because having self-awareness that you're experiencing it is one thing, but having the ability to self-manage your stress is a totally different skill. Both of them are incredibly important, but what I often find is that people lack on the latter because as those things come up, not everybody's taught about how to constructively deal with it, especially, you know, if their caregivers never did it for themselves or people they hung out with didn't do it for themselves. It's a bit of the blind leading the blind. And so I would say that stress and how people manage it can be contagious but it depends on how it's showing up for them because people deal with it very differently. There are some folks who can really take it in stride and there's other people who will, you know, burst into the heat of a thousand suns and that can be contagious because, you know, we're humans, we're naturally social creatures. We tend to sometimes mimic behavior that we see around us or sometimes avoid behavior if it doesn't feel good. And so 
I would say that, uh, I would say stress levels can be quite contagious. Uh, but that's where I would end that sentence. <laughs> and, and thank you for helping me articulate that and clarifying that no, because I, I should have paraphrased it. Um, but <laughs> it, it, we're, we're talking about non-clinical mental health in that Correct. sense. Uh, it's workplace yeah. stress that, that someone doesn't contagious. have a clinical diagnosis. And, and that's what I was really inferring that, yeah. um, you know, if, whether it's at home, such as that manager suggested that his wife's thinking of divorcing him because all he did was work and he was never there. Even when he was physically there, he wasn't mentally there and that created yeah. stress in the family. Um, that's what I meant by that contagious yeah. part. That whether, whether, yeah. whatever the, the etiology was or whatever the cause was, you know, it could be, it could be clinical or it could be non-clinical, but um, so that was my path. And, and I want to, I, I don't know if this is a congratulations to you, but this was the fastest segment of Geek Skeezes and Googleization ever. I just looked at the clock uh, and we are at a, about 30 minutes after the hour. Uh, and we usually take about a two minute break. So when we come back, we're absolutely going to continue this conversation. There's so much more that we want to get into. So we're going to collect our thoughts and figure out what the next questions was going to be. But hopefully everybody is enjoying Geek Skeezes and Googleization. Uh, it's a tough topic, but hopefully we're bringing it to light. And as uh, Melissa said, she's only one person, but hopefully we're going to reach many, many more today. Um, by being here and we thank all our listeners at geek skeezers and googleization so we're going to take a really quick break and we will be back in less than two minutes for most of us change is freaking terrifying and unfortunately there's no app to adapt that might change in the not so distant future but for now we're on our own that means we can either accept our default future or reimagine our tomorrow for those of you who choose default, good luck. Just remember, there's no pause button for change. You can't turn back the clock. And there's no get-out-of-jail-free card in this age of perpetual uncertainty. Like it or not, change will happen all around us. And that change is not becoming just more disruptive and frequent, but volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, or VUCA. Fortunately, you can make change work for you and turn it into your personal and competitive advantage. Reimagine your future to one in which you're living with purpose, you're happy, and you're growing, thriving, and flourishing. If you're ready to rewrite your next life chapter and regain control of your destiny in this never-normal world, your journey starts here. Contact the leader in adaptability and making change work for you, your team, and your organization. Ira S. Wolf, adaptability.expert. There's a certain kind of coach who believes what we believe, who leads people to greatness, who gets people unstuck, who unlocks all of your passion, a coach who helps people discover what drives them to tap into their superpowers. That knowing your why is the first step to untap potential, to focus, to breakthroughs. A coach who's looking for a better way. Are you that coach? 
Hey, welcome back everyone to Geek Skeezers and Googleization. Uh, we're here today with our organizational psychologist, not our organizational psychologist, but organizational psychologist, <laughs> Melissa Doman. Uh, hopefully she'll become our so <laughs> organizational psychologist. Uh, but uh, fascinating topic. We're talking about how to, uh, how to get uh, workplace mental health rights. And Jason, I think you had a question you wanted to reach out to Melissa with. Yeah, I thought it would be good to start on this side of the, the break with diving into some of the how, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners are like, okay, you've got me on the edge of my seat. I totally agree with you. We've got to change the narrative. There's a lot going on. So Melissa, when you're working with clients, um, what does it look like? What are some of the first steps if they're saying, yes, we want to start supporting mental health better in the workplace? What does that look like? So I think that there needs to be a very clear why we give a bleep statement. I figured I shouldn't curse on this podcast. So um, why they give a bleep about doing this, because if there isn't a reasonably authentic reason about why this is being done, people can smell BS pretty easily or something that's performative or like a checkbox. So anytime I work with organizations, it's not just them bringing me in to do a keynote or a fireside or a training or whatever. I basically say, we need to tell people why we're doing this, what is going to be included, what are the outcomes that we're going for, and how success will be measured long-term. It's a very abstract concept, so I try to make it as concrete and measurable as possible. So I often start with that. You know, what is the reason for this business, not why the market is telling you that you should do it? There's a very big difference. And so I think that's the, the first place to start. There also needs to be, depending on how much they want to dive in, I always advise them to create a roadmap. What are the pain points in the business around this topic? And what are the educational interventions that you need to deliver and to which populations to address those pain points? So you can equip people with these skills at all levels, by the way. This is, this is often where I tend to do a bit of a, a gentle correction with folks is that this is a skill set that every person in the business, regardless of tenure or position or title, needs to have. This is not just for leaders, not just for C-suite. Because people tend to think based on those job titles that if they're an individual contributor or don't have managerial you know, responsibilities, that they will absolve themselves of the responsibility to develop the skill set. And that's just not true. They're all chronologically aged adults and each person needs to learn this to some degree or another. So coming up with that roadmap with those different points that I mentioned, and then really learning how to apply the education because I can come in and deliver all of this, but there has to be the expectation of, well, here's what it looks like in practice. Here's what good looks like. And here's how we're going to be holding people accountable going forward. Now, keep in mind, we're not trying to make people feel obligated to talk about mental health in the workplace. That would be very uncomfortable and inappropriate. We're trying to give them the skills to do so as and when it comes up and to feel psychologically safe to do so. So really helping people understand the function of this conversation within the boundaries of the workplace, not that we're trying to create group therapy at work or turn HR into psychiatrists, because that's that's one of the, the complaints or fears that I get as well. How do I know it's appropriate? You know, what's too far? What's my bit? Da, 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 da. And I say, I'm really happy you asked that question, because just because we're talking about this in the workplace context, 
doesn't mean it's going to become a medicalized conversation or that there are certain things that you should feel obligated to help with that you shouldn't and you're not qualified to. So it's understanding what is my role in these conversations? How can I enter these conversations with trying to have more of a picture of what I am looking for? Why am I bringing this up in the workplace? What am I trying to get out of it? You know, if I want to support others, how do I want to do that? How do I want to let other people know that I'm up for these conversations? So I tend to look at all levels, whether it's C-suite coming from HR, coming from leaders, from the person who's sharing, from the person who's supporting. You have to look at all angles of the prism because I really just look at it as developing conversational literacy about a language that we all need to know how to speak. So I start with the comms and the why, put a roadmap in place so you're not just doing, you know, checkbox on Mental Health Awareness Day in October or Mental Health Awareness, uh, I'm sorry, World Mental Health Day in October, Mental Health Awareness Month in May, that you're showing that it's an ongoing endeavor because it always matters. And so having that present, it, it's teaching people a communication skill like anything else. So I tend to tell them to incorporate that in their professional development plans. And also, you know, oftentimes when it comes to, especially for leaders and stuff like that, there are a lot of folks now in their reviews are putting in uh, behavioral assessments from a skill perspective. So what I mean by that is I've seen some, you know, HR folks who are creating these assessments where it says, you know, uh, are you practicing encouragement and empathy and supportive behaviors towards others? How are you elevating other people? It's not the question of, do you support your team with mental health? That, that's not the question. The question is, are you a supportive manager? You know, do you practice these behaviors and values with your team? So finding non-pressury, non-clinical ways to then evaluate how those skills are developing over time. Because if you develop the education, but you're not showing people how to apply it and then say, well, hey, this actually matters, you know, down the road, it's all for nothing. So I try to make it as concrete as possible, but you gotta start with the comms and then creating some legs under it and then you execute. And has anything changed with remote work in terms of how you're doing that now? Has that made any anything more complex or actually made it better? Um, I just tend to be very, very explicit about the importance of vocal and facial tones in these conversations. There are a lot of things that can get lost in written communication, and people are really good at assigning meaning to written communication that may not be accurate to what that person is trying to say. So I also try to remind people that just because we are seeing each other in a screen and not physically in person doesn't mean you can't have these conversations. You just, you just have to be more mindful of the medium in which you're having them. So there's, um, there's also a lot of, uh, because people are changing out the stressors, I'm not going to say removing, but changing out their stressors from communicating or being in an office or what have you. It doesn't mean that just because you're working from home doesn't mean you're not having mental health struggles. You should still be able to talk about that, but it's just going to be in a different medium and in a different fashion. So I just let people know how to pay extra attention to how they have these 
conversations in a remote environment. So Melissa, you talked a couple of times about skill sets. So, and you heard the commercial, I think, for adaptability. And we use a framework and we talk about uh, adaptability skills. And then we talk about, you know, how people's personality and traits might impact it, but also the company culture. So when we talk about company culture, uh, we look at this, do people feel that there's support from management? Do they feel that there's support from their team and their direct manager? And is there a psychologically safe space? So we're creating an environment. Then we're also, but when you talk about skills, uh, the default seems to be is that oh, we're going to equip our employees with the skills they need. And we talk about grit and resilience and learning and unlearning and, and growth mindset. But it almost puts all the responsibility back on the employee. employee. And, mm-hmm. and we always try to be fair that, they live in an environment and both matter. And, 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 I, and I think this is where you were going with this with managers is that the, not only everybody needs to be equipped with that, but managers need to be equipped. But Everyone. I guess my challenge is that there, there are so many reports and, and we don't have to do a study with this. We, we know they exist of the toxic workplaces. So now we're having managers who are just bad at managing people and that now they're supposed to create an environment that and and have the ability to have an easier conversation about mental health, um, but they're not very good at even doing the the technical stuff. <laughs> so I'm going to be really honest. Not all companies are going to do this, and not all companies are going to do well. And I wish I could say that this will come up in every business, every industry. It's not the way of the world. There are always going to be some organizations or leaders who just don't care and don't want to bring it in or it's too high risk. And I think setting the expectation otherwise is unrealistic. And so I think there is a balance between a culture in its practice, not its website description, but also the individual responsibility of each adult that works there. I think it is a a balance for both because people have to take their own skill development into account, but there also has to be the duty of care on behalf of the organization for a psychologically and physiologically safe workplace to be able to use those skills. So I look at both parties and I say, you're all responsible. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but not every business is going to talk about this. And I, I don't shy away from that because that's not how humans work. And yeah. I, while I would love, love to say that someday there's going to be zero stigma attached to talking about mental health, that's not possible. There are too many factors that go into what we think about what this organ does. There's too many factors. There's 8 billion people on the planet. There will always be some sort of stigma or crappy language that people say attached to this topic or people who don't see the value or people who do it for the wrong reasons. What we're trying to do is to get the majority of those businesses and those people to try to get it right. So that the ones you don't are like the weird ones in the corner. And I'm so glad the way you you gave that context, because one is it's not only practical and realistic, but from from what we're trying to do is give people solutions. And for companies that are looking for solutions, yeah. how can I attract better talent? How can I retain better talent? How can how can our organization grow and thrive? How do we become a better 
um, a, a better contributor to our community and to yeah. and to the world is the good news is, as as you admitted, and we all know, we recognize this, most, many, I won't say most, but many organizations just aren't going to do it, even if they have the best of intentions, because it's going to take a lot of work, which means that it creates an enormous opportunity for those that do. You know, there's a lot, I think it's also important to note the reasons that organizations don't do it. There's a lot of easy ways to assume why they don't. And I think it's important to think about why. It doesn't make it right that they're not doing it, but there is always a reason that organizations avoid this conversation, whether it's uh, too liability ridden, whether they think that bringing it up, bringing it up is too high risk in terms of the outcomes that that organization is responsible for, whether the leaders in that business are all of a certain time period where it's just not something they talked about. There are lots of reasons that, that companies don't bring it up, or more importantly, they want to, and they don't know how, or they want to have resources, but they can't afford it. There's lots of reasons, and I think it's important for people to, especially if they're working for a business who doesn't, to discern why it's not being brought up, if it's possible to be brought up, brought up in the future, and if not, if they have the luxury of going elsewhere, if that's the right place for them. That's not a popular thing to say, but sometimes, you know, whether it's managers or the business as a whole, that ecosystem is telling you what it won't and can't give you. Well, if you want to work for a business that will, you might have to go elsewhere if you can afford to go elsewhere. And Melissa, to piggyback on that, a couple of years ago, I, I wrote an article about, should we have an OSHA for mental health? Um, you know, should there be a, a, a basal standard of mental health care intervention support in the workplace? Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm curious, have you ever thought about that, uh, any resources on it, or just have a strong opinion um, on that type of a concept? So I think that it's really challenging because to be able to afford benefits for a business can be really expensive. And so if there's going to be a requirement to provide mental health benefits for a business, for the businesses who can't afford it, there has to be some sort of support infrastructure in place for them to assist them in providing those resources for their employees, because not everybody can afford it. And so I think there's that practicality piece of the money, if we're being really honest. Uh, but I also think that I'm curious to see how things are going to evolve ever since the U.S. Surgeon General came out about toxic workplaces being extremely harmful for mental health. And you have to walk a very fine line because when it comes to support in the workplace, I, I will never forget, I was on a panel a number of years back and um, someone was saying, well, there should be a, an in-house therapist in every workplace. And I said, I don't agree. I don't agree. And I realize that you wouldn't expect me to say that, but here's why I'm saying that. <laughs> because doesn't it sound nice that there could be a counselor, a therapist, something like that on staff where people can go talk to that person? It sounds nice in theory. However, in practice, because not all human beings do things for the right reasons or get it right, there will be scenarios 
that if an employee is acting differently or is being dubbed as being difficult or something like that, they'll just be very quick to send them to the therapist in-house. And then I see lots of occasions potentially where they're trying to pressure that therapist to share details, which is completely illegal. And so I just see a lot of complications evolving from that. There are some organizations that do employ in-house therapists, but there are very, 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 very strict rules around confidentiality, uh, limits to that being harm to self, harm to others, child abuse, elder abuse. But I just see a lot of complications with that. (laughs) So I think that where I see it more realistically going is from a logistics and financial perspective, but I really think that there need to be resources in place to support those businesses who can't afford to give those resources to the employees. Uh, I do think from an anti-discrimination standpoint that we are moving more towards the protection of employees who are discriminated against for mental health issues, because historically speaking, The U.S. is very employer focused. There's lots of, you know, protections for employers, not as much as for employees. We're actually in the U.K. and the E.U. It's quite the opposite. There's more protections for employees than employers. So I see a lot more protection coming for the individual, you know, down the road uh, with protected characteristics becoming a more common concept, things like that. Uh, But when it comes to mental health, it's a, a much more three-dimensional line to walk (laughs) than just physical health. Melissa, sadly, we're coming pretty close to the end here. And there's a couple of things that we like to wrap up with, but we always like to to give our guests uh, an opportunity to answer this question. And I'm almost afraid to do it because just listening to you, I've got a billion questions. So I'm (laughs) sure there's a lot of things we didn't ask. The question is, is there a specific question that we should have asked you that we didn't? Oh, um, I would say that uh, a good one we could cover off really quickly is why is intentionality of language around this topic in the workplace so critical? Well, why is intentionality so critical? (laughs) So uh, oftentimes people will inappropriately co-opt language around mental health to describe how they're feeling or an experience that they're encountering or the way that describing mental health initiatives in the workplace is done can be a little too flexible and sometimes haphazard. So what I would say is that being very intentional about how you name these sorts of initiatives, what you're trying to achieve, not dancing around those concepts. Don't call it mental wellness or bringing your best self to work. Just call it what it is, mental health in the workplace or when people are having this conversation in the workplace and they find that using these words in a more malleable way that isn't as policed (laughs) can be really dangerous because if people are using terms inappropriately to describe another person or something they've encountered, you never know what people are privately struggling with. So if people are using stigmatizing language around mental health or mental illness, that's a great way to make people feel like, well, this is not a safe place for me to talk about this. Or if there is unintentional toxic positivity and how initiatives are named, like creating a positive culture around mental health sounds great in practice, but what that tells people is your negative thoughts and experiences are not welcome here and you better put a smile on that face. 
So that's uh, just a little nugget at the end. <laughs> I love it, Melissa. And, and that segues perfectly into our last segment that we have for you before we, we hop off here. And that is the lightning round. Okay. I'm going to ask you just a few questions to get sure. to know you a little bit better personally. So let's start sure. with this one. How about a favorite band, musical artist, or song for you? Uh, favorite band is the Lone Bellow. Oh, I've never I heard of them, them before. Oh my God, they're amazing. They have the voices of angels. What uh, what genre are they? Oh what type gosh, of music? they're like Americana folk rock gospel, all kind of put into one. And I've seen them like half a dozen times and I'm absolutely obsessed. I'm actually seeing them in a couple of weeks here in Denver. And I don't think they get nearly as much attention as they should. And their voices are like ethereally gorgeous. Uh, and they, they're, I am not religious at all, but every time they sing, they take me to church. Oh, so, I love that. Well, yeah. you've just given me a new group. I'm going to put in my Spotify this afternoon and check oh, them out. So, so thank good. you for that. <laughs> and how about this one? If, if there's anybody in the history of the world that you could spend the day with, who would it be? <laughs> That's such a hard question. Uh, or maybe oh. just a century. Um, oh, man. Uh, Bob Marley. That's a first. I love that. Yeah. He just wanted to spread love through music and wanted to help people enjoy their time on this earth and with each other. And uh, he just seems like he was, you know, pretty decent human being. I love that. And I think he would have loved today's conversation too on mental health. I think that's <laughs> I something hope so. he probably would care about. Absolutely. And <laughs> and this final one here. Yeah. Going back to high school, what's something that your high school classmates would probably be surprised to see about Melissa Doman now? Uh, be surprised to see about me now. Um, probably that I stand up for myself more often. Yeah, I think they would be surprised at that. I know that anybody who knows me now is like, what are you talking about? You've probably been doing that since you were in diapers. And actually, no, I, I uh, qualify myself as a recovering people pleaser. So I think seeing me stand up for myself to friends more often is something I think that would surprise people. Thank you for, for being vulnerable and sharing that area of growth with us, Melissa. And that's what the show is all about is, is, you know, talking about these things and thank you for, for helping us not only talk about, but give leaders practical steps on how to go about bringing about positive structure and supports in their organization for mental health, for everybody. And for everyone who, who's listening, you can learn more about Melissa's work by going to melissadoman.com. And she's also very active on LinkedIn, puts out tremendous content, so you can connect with her there as well. Any other ways uh, for people to get in touch with you, Melissa? Uh, you can also follow me on Instagram at The Wandering Mel or Twitter at Melissa Doman LLC. Uh, but LinkedIn or my website is the best place to get in touch with me. Thanks so much, Melissa. Uh, it was fascinating. As I said in the first segment, I can't believe how, how fast it went in the second and the whole conversation. I've got a list of questions here. So we <laughs> definitely want to have you back. And and at the end, thank you for, I mean, I think your answer to your question uh, exemplified what we talk about all the time about living your purpose is, you know, what what your classmates might be talking about you 
how see you now differently. Um, the reality is, is when you live your purpose, when you find your purpose, changes you. You're willing to stand up and do what it takes. Well, my my uh, 20 year high school reunion is actually coming up, which is wild to think about. So, uh, you know, maybe maybe I'll maybe I'll go. We'll see. Well, up until that point, everything was good, but at 20, 20 years is like long in my rearview mirror. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but th th thank you again. I uh, really appreciate it. And they can get your book on your website as well as Amazon. Oh, it's available across all major retailers. So okay, on my website, excellent. there is a, a page that has like all the different retailers listed, but you can get it at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, local bookstore. It's, it's everywhere. Perfect. And it should be. Hey, thanks very uh, thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you so much. Ira, that really was. I know we say every week it goes by fast. That one was was super fast. Um, it was like oh. we entered some kind of a DeLorean and just yeah. flew through time uh, there. What were some of the big takeaways for you? That's that superpower, that time travel that everybody seems to want to have. <laughs> the tri uh, teleportation. right? Yeah. Um, real quickly, because I know we're, we're short on time here. I wrote down a couple things. One is, I think the question about what does good mental health look like in the workplace? I think that was a question that, that Melissa had started with. And I think another point that you made was, is putting that uh, full-time therapist or having a wellness office, and you don't want to obligate employees to have to talk about it. And, you know, aside that, you know, look, is people say, hey, we're going to offer this. We have all these great programs but then get upset when people don't take advantage of it and not look at the reasons they don't. Um, but also you can't force people or obligate people to do that. And, and of course her final, the final statement of how she tied in living a purpose and not unknowingly did that. And, and that's what happens when you live your purpose. It, it, it just changes your life. <laughs> that's right. Absolutely. The two for me real quickly were when she made the statement that if you're a leader of an organization, you want to see mental health claims going up. You want people accessing these resources and feeling like it's okay to get the help that they need. Um, so aim into that. And then the other one that I loved was just the, the whole premise of her book, that it's not, it's not mental health and. Stop connecting mental health and productivity, mental health and profits, mental health and employee engagement. Okay, we, we understand that there, and, and it's been well-researched, as she mentioned, that yes, improved mental health in the workplace leads to those improved business outcomes. But to start with, if you're the leader of an organization, the very foundation of why you should be focusing on positive mental health initiatives and policies and practices in your business is because it's the right thing for people. It's the humane thing to do. It is a basic need, just like they would need air, water, food, shelter, is anything else. And so we need to stop treating it as though it's some kind of extra added benefit that then superpowers your profits. Yes, it does do that, but that's not the why behind why you should be focusing on it and making it a priority this year. And so with that, um, I just want to thank you, Googleization Nation, for tuning in today. If you haven't liked and subscribed to the podcast, please do so. We've got a brand new website, geekskeezersgoogleization.com. You can check it out there. And if you haven't joined our exclusive community, uh, 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 Googleization Nation, it's free to join. Um, all I have to do is provide your email address and you can get some of the, the best tips um, and resources and sneak previews of things that are coming out around the corner. So. Until next time, I'm Jason Cochran signing off.
And I'm Ira Wolf. Special thanks to Y Institute for partnering with us and sponsoring this episode. Thank you for to Melissa Doman again. Uh, please go check her website out at melissadoman.com. Check out her book, as Jason was talking about. Thank you, too, for being part of Googleization Nation. And until next time, don't let the shift hit your plans.